In Catherine Adele West's Saving Ruby King, Alice King is murdered in her home in the south side of Chicago. Her daughter Ruby is despairing at the thought of being left to live with her father Lebanon in a house that holds a whispered history of dysfunction and abuse. Her goal is to flee and start fresh in a new place, but the path will not be an easy one. This is Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. I'm Yvette Benavides. Layla is Ruby's friend, and she's committed to finding out what happened to Alice and to start a new life in a new place, away from the sadness she inherited from her mother. As African-American women, the two friends face other challenges, including living on the south side of Chicago and confronting the effects of gentrification, poverty, and racism. They also battle resistance from their families and their church community, who'd rather they didn't dig around for answers to these complicated questions. We soon learn that Layla's journey to excavate the secrets and silences becomes a perilous one for her and for Ruby. Even the church, the building itself, has some light to shed on these mysteries. The eponymous central character of Saving Ruby King has suffered for most of her life. The town knows that her father Lebanon had a difficult upbringing. He was abused by his mother and then spent some time in jail as a young man. The experiences don't help in his relationships as husband and father. When her mother is found dead, Ruby is convinced that she cannot remain in the house with her father. Best friend Layla is a curious and caring friend. In looking for ways to look out for Ruby, she begins to uncover other dreadful mysteries and tragedies. Will any of them survive the worst of it? Catherine Adele West talked to us from her home in Chicago about Saving Ruby King. So for our listeners who have not yet read Saving Ruby King. Can you give us just a brief synopsis? Sure, absolutely. So Saving Ruby King um, is about two families and the lengths one girl will go to to save her friend when a murder upends their tight-knit Chicago church community. Um, It's about love, um, redemption, loss, betrayal, um, generational trauma, and the sacrifices we make to keep those that we love close to us. I know that there are autobiographical elements here, details that are loosely, loosely based on your life. Where did the inspiration for this book come from? Because you had to sort of mine some of your personal experiences. Um, so where did where did the inspiration for this particular novel come from? So, I mean, a lot of it came from me, you know, growing up in the Black church. Um, I would say like 20% of it is based on it the other 80 percent is just really stuff i pulled out of the air so for instance um my dad is a pastor my brother is an artist you know um grew up on the south side of chicago went to church um the book really started out actually as a way to understand the relationship that i had with my father and kind of how the black church played a role in it and then it really just evolved into what you have now, because I mean, I didn't feel like basically like a 80,000 word book or a 300 page book, just about, you know, father daughter relationships was going to be 
really entertaining. So like I just added literary elements, mystery elements, like a great big literary gumbo and came out with, with Saving Ruby King. You do something so interesting with point of view in this novel. There are like six alternating narrators, including interestingly Calvary Hope Christian Church. It, you know, there's there are these chapters where the church is narrating. Where did you get the idea for that? And what did articulating this particular point of view throughout the novel, really, um, and throughout the generations um, help you accomplish? So basically, this idea of making the, the church have its own voice wasn't my idea. Uh, a friend of mine, a co-worker of mine named Luke Salazar, uh, read a really, really, really early edition of Saving Ruby King. Um, it was actually, it used to be called Potter's Will, but the, the title was changed. And when he read it, he was like, this is good, but like, have, did you think about maybe making the church its own point of view? And I was like, oh my God, that's a brilliant idea. Plus, once I did it, I was able to kind of scratch this literary itch that I have for writing, um, you know, in a really timeless classical style that you can't, you know, you can't have people, you know, in the 21st century speaking like a timeless church, right? So I really used a lot of, you know, my, my favorite older writers, so like Dickens and Oscar Wilde and Shakespeare, and then mixed it with a lot of my more like favorite, you know, modern writers. So like Octavia Butler and James Baldwin. And then I was able to create like this voice of the church. And honestly, it was my way of, you know, like a kind of a cheat way of info dumping. So it just wouldn't be so boring. Like, and then this happened and then this happened. And then this <laughs> happened. So for me, the church really served as a way to kind of get these really big secrets and plot twists out, but at the same time, scratch this literary itch that I had to, to write in as much of a timeless classical style as I possibly could. No, it's an omniscience that, I don't know, it's, it's still um, a limited omniscience, right? It's still like this all-knowing character, um, or narrator that that's really only narrating what's happening in the confines of the church and what's observable. I think it's I think it's brilliant. I I you know info dump or not whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's so there's so much that works about it. You know they um, from you know uh, forming a judgment about the color of the paint on the wall <laughs> to you know some of the weightier issues, the conversations that go that go on in the church, and then you know some of the and I'll save the spoilers and some of the other things that happen within the confines of that space. So it's, a, it's just such a, an interesting way to treat the narration. And I, and I have to say, it's really hard to pick a favorite narrator. As I read the book and I, you know, turn the page and the next chapter said Layla or Lebanon or Jackson. It was, I was like into it. <laughs> I was so excited. Uh, <laughs> so there's just something that really, really works with this alternating point of view. I mean that that really that heartened that really heartens me that really makes me happy. I mean, I think when I started the book, I, I really went through like twenty different. This is the first book I ever wrote. I went through like twenty different versions of this book before I pretty much settled on what you see now. And then I had to go through like so many different developmental edits. Like at at one point, um, 
the book actually had another point of view and another timeline. So one of the, ended up becoming the ancillary characters, Holden um, Walters, ended up um, having his own point of view. And then there was an additional timeline, like in the 1970s. Um, but, you know, I took that out to, to, you know, I mean, the book was already kind of like saga-ish and just had like this really wide sweeping view. So, you know, definitely had to tone that down. And, um, you know, now you only have six uh, <laughs> points of view and like, you know, two-ish, three-ish different timelines. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it works. And another thing that works well is the Black female friendships running throughout the story. You have the early generation friendship story of Sarah, Naomi, and Violet. And then we get to see them as older women in the novel, too. You also have more contemporarily Ruby King and Layla. It's just a very compelling uh, approach to what sort of runs the novel or moves the plot is the, the friendship of these women and these sort of ride-or-die <laughs> relationships that um, that emerge. That honestly is, is the perfect term that I would use. I mean, but with Black female friendships, it, it really is like that. It really is the, a very deep ride-or-die aspect of our friendships, you know, where we're very loyal and very passionate about our friends and we get involved in their business sometimes to our or their detriment, right? But it's just one of those things that becomes all-encompassing. So, like, what happens to you happens to me, and what happens to me happens to you. Um, and, and I just really wanted to highlight the depth and the power and the fragility of Black female friendships. And, and I'm really happy that Saving Ruby King does that in a really dynamic way. Saving Ruby King is Layla. It, Layla's trying to save her friend. And the thematic element here to do with generational trauma is really front and center with this conflict, this very profound conflict. Why was it important for you to address this here in these ways? And of course, it's, it's not just Ruby, as we learned. The generational trauma means that her parents were also uh, subject to some pretty terrible things, and so were their parents, and so on and so on. Wh- why was it so important for you to address this? Well, I, I honestly feel that, I mean, not just in the Black community and in and, and all communities, um, many families deal with generational trauma. The thing is, how do you break that cycle, right? Like, what is the one thing that's going to allow us that freedom to live our lives in a completely different way, as opposed to living kind of the same cyclical pattern of, you know, hurt and pain and regret. And that's, you know, one big question that I try to answer that I want to answer with Saving Ruby King. I think the the main passion or the main drive for me was to just show a family much like any other family that's dealing with, you know, issues um, like domestic violence or, you know, the, the African-American community dealing with police brutality and like how those things affect both the outside and the community and like the inside of families. And I just wanted to make sure to tell a compelling story, but a very realistic story about how generational trauma really does affect, you know, generation to generation. I mean, that's why it's called generational trauma, but more so than that, once again, to just 
figure out what it means to break that chain and break that cycle and allow a certain freedom of living. Um, you know, once all of the secrets and, and, and everything is just like laid bare and laid out on the table. And as if that wasn't all enough, right? These characters interject a lot of ideas that they have about other weighty issues like poverty, mass incarceration, racial injustice, gentrification is another big one. There's some major topics of our time and your novel tackles them. I mean, even in just these interior monologues of some of these characters whose lives are directly impacted by these issues of social equity. Uh, so it's really interesting to me how the younger characters are are able to describe those things or, I mean, and not just sort of mention them in passing, right, but to really live through these difficult moments in the now and, and talk to each other about these complicated situations. As I'm thinking particularly about gentrification in terms of Chicago. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, you see it happening and then, you know, as, you know, in terms of the Black community, like you, you see gentrification happening, but just as somebody with no wealth, you know, um, property wealth, you know, financial wealth, et cetera, no kind of real power, political or otherwise, how does that affect you when you have, um, so for instance, the Obama library is being built on the South side of Chicago, which is fabulous. Like I'm super duper happy about it. A, that he picked Chicago, obviously. And um, B, that it's, it's going to be on the South side. But see, then, then comes with that, what comes with that are like real concerns about affordable housing, people raising rents. So then like the people who've lived there for God knows how many years can't afford to live there anymore. Like property taxes being raised so high that people who've had like these generational homes are driven out because like they can no longer afford, you know, the taxes and, was one, and what was once a really black part of the city becomes brownish just white and then they talk about oh well this used to be like a black part of town you know what i mean and then you know the issues of you know white flight so then once you know integration and the civil rights movement and then once we started to you know move into the community white people started to just really just leave um so it's it was just something that i felt needed to be addressed i mean like i'm gonna call a spade a spade and just say, you know, these are the issues that we're dealing with. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to, you know, build up our communities and invest in our communities because that's what we really need. But at the same time, don't do it to the detriment of that community to where it's like the people who were in there can no longer afford to live here anymore. Um, so I think that that's just something that we really, really need to be mindful of. So here and now in the summer of 2020, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and other black men and women, what can you tell us about the important ways that your book is helping to amplify black voices right now? I mean, here we are talking about all of these other major issues and the novel becomes a way for you to do that. It's important in the publishing world for uh, black voices to be present and to be amplified. What are your thoughts about that? Um, my thoughts about that were, it always should have been that way. And we were always dealing with these issues. I just, and, I, and I've said this before in other interviews, I think the difference with uh, George Floyd was the white acknowledgement that came with it. 
right? So I really hadn't seen that type of reaction from communities outside of the black community. I mean, I really don't think ever, like when, you know, Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin, when those things, those unfortunate situations occurred, it was really just us in the street. But for whatever reason, George Floyd really sparked this kind of nationwide almost reckoning with race and racial relations. But it's something that, you know, black people have always talked about. My book isn't the only book that, you know, deals with this. I mean, we've been talking about this as far as, Frederick Douglass. I mean, <laughs> this isn't new for us. I mean, I, I just think that the reckoning in terms of the, you know, in terms of like white privilege and what it means to be white in America versus what it means to be black in America, that's what's really, I think, coming to the fore. And I do think that it's a conversation that still needs to be had. You know, I just, I don't want any of this to really taper down and then things just kind of go back to the way they were until the next tragedy, right? Um, so I kind of feel that one of the ways we can do that is by um, just kind of um, involving communities more in what's going on, um, a complete like top-down uh, uh, reimagining of, you know, uh, police procedure and, you know, how it is they engage with us and engage with the community, uh, with the Black community and Brown community at large. Um, and then I also think that in terms of how my book does that, it, it plays, you know, um, a role, I mean, a, a small role, but it does play a role in trying to bring those conversations to the fore, to just say, hey, like, this is a book I read, and these are the issues that it dealt with, and like, this is what I feel about the issue, and this is what I think about the issue, or just don't think, just be educated by the book, you know what I mean? Like, you know, as a white person or, you know, uh, a, not, you know, a non-person of color, to just kind of read the book and just be like, oh, okay, so this is like my different way of thinking. So let me try to adjust how I see the world, you know, to try to be, you know, more of an ally and not so much, um, you know, an enemy to a movement that really, really needs to happen in the nation. You don't shy away from this idea about the ways that violence perpetuates violence and racism perpetuates racism. Um, so I'm thinking about the ways that these characters, if they've done something terrible, if they have, if they harbor these secrets, and if they pass down these these terrible legacies to the next generation, this novel is still really about redemption, and that's something that um, I think is is one of the hallmarks of this book. I completely agree with that. Redemption is a really, really big part of Saving Ruby King, a really, really big theme of Saving Ruby King. I think it's because when people feel that they've led certain lives up to a point of they, they've done all of these things up to a certain point, they feel like there is no hope. Like I've done so many horrible things, I've done so many bad things, there's no way to turn that around and live my life for the better and then help others live their lives for the better. I wanted to write this book to, to kind of say, no, that's, that's not the case. Like, it's not over, you know, really until the fat lady sings, right? Like, you can still, you can make mistakes, you can make horrible, awful mistakes, but your life can still be a testament to... Um, you know, love and hard work and forgiveness and 
and wisdom. You know, I mean, there's there's really no um, place in which your life is just this kind of black hole of regret and hatred unless you choose to live it that way. Catherine, thanks so much for talking to us today. Yvette, you, you've just been a pleasure. I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. I just had a wonderful time. Catherine Adele West is the author of Saving Ruby King. This has been Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. Is there a book or author you'd like to hear about on Book Public? Send us an email and let us know. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.